Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. At the turn of the 20th century, historians who romanticized the Old South wrote about its politics before, during, and after the Civil War as though all white Southerners were secessionists, ardent Confederates, and then noble redeemers. In the last quarter of the 20th century, revisionists portrayed white Southerners as undifferentiated violent racists. Now, in the 21st century, Professor Michael Fitzgerald argues that white Southerners were a more complex and differentiated group than previously recognized, as revealed in his detailed study of a single state, Reconstruction in Alabama from Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, or ECU, as we are being branded by our current chancellor, America's next great national university, to be known just by its initials, ECU, like NYU or USC. Uh, We'll see how that goes. Some of us remember a decade or so back when there was a big campaign, don't call it ECU, be sure it's East Carolina University in all official mail. Uh, well, where the pendulum swings were ECU. I'm not speaking for ECU or for East Carolina University or any organization, just myself, as I always do on Civil War Talk Radio. And our guests likewise tonight will be doing the same thing. Well, not speaking for ECU, not speaking for any university, including uh, the University of Michigan, my alma mater. Those of you who are keeping a bracket in this year's NCAA basketball tournament in this year's 2018, uh, if you're listening later to a downloaded episode, here in 2018, if you're listening later, you already know who won the tournament We don't know it at this moment, but the number one seeds have been getting upset right and left. And my uh, native, my my old team of Michigan won their game, second game last week on a very late uh, buzzer beater, three-point shot, the kind of thing that happens in the movies. Doesn't usually happen to, to Michigan. It did this time. So we've beaten two inferior teams in undeserving ways. My daughter's team down the road here at Chapel Hill was unexpectedly beaten by 120 points by an inferior team, so Michigan will not play them next week. Well, you didn't tune in to Sports Network. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Let's move along and talk a different sport. Um, Pick up soccer turns out not to be my game. After years of playing adult soccer, I Gave it up last year, thought I was just getting too old and, and heavy to keep doing this. Decided I would try it again, join the over 40 league this spring. Played a couple pickup games the last two weeks to see how I'm doing, and I can barely move my right knee, can't put any weight on it. Turns out uh, my wife was right when she said you should take up golf in her continuing quest to find ways to keep me out of the house, whether it's doing Civil War talk radio on Wednesday evening or playing golf or or soccer on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, she's right. Uh, soccer is, is a no-go, but, you know, golf, I could try that. So we'll see how that goes. Here on campus, academically uh, speaking, this uh, today is National History Day. If you volunteered at your local uh, campus or high school or wherever History Day was being conducted. Uh, Thank you for doing that. It is a really great program across uh, the United States that gets students to work on history-related projects, and uh, that's what our students did here from Eastern North Carolina, coming to Greenville. Hundreds of students and their teachers and chaperones converged on campus. It's a great event every year. I always get a kick out of seeing the students uh, milling about excitedly through the student center. Hey, they have a bowling alley in the student center. Maybe I should go to college. If that's what brings them, that's good. At least they get here. I, my, I was paired with a, a I, I judged the contests as did uh, dozens of other people. We need judges, uh, lots of judges to judge the many, many, literally hundreds of entries. 
so I was paired with my co-judge today was the provost of the university who had never done this before. And we had a good time. He had an injured uh, foot from his grandchildren playing basketball. I had an injured knee. So we limped around the place looking at the three-panel tabletop exhibits. Uh, we had the traditional category today. And uh, it, it's just inspiring to see what students will do. On a higher scale, uh, my own students in a graduate and advanced undergrad class have been building an exhibit uh, based on the life and uh, disappearance of a World War II aviator from the nearby town of Farmville. And we've I've just been tremendously impressed with the students' energy and initiative in designing this exhibit and researching it and finding documents and uh, photographs and materials online and at various museums throughout the southeast uh, part of the country, traveling to Florida and South Carolina. And I bring this up because if you want to donate to Civil War Talk Radio but have been holding back because you think, why should I give him my money? Uh, that's a perfectly legitimate reason. As I've pointed out on many shows, donations to Civil War Talk Radio are not tax deductible, and there is no transparency or oversight in how I spend them. Uh, nobody knows about it. Not uh, Mrs. Prokopovich, not uh, the IRS. That Who knows what I'm doing with that money? But now, I theoretically, I buy books to read it for the show, and sometimes I do. But I'm telling you now, this week, uh, that money would be spent on materials for the exhibit. We, for example, are installing an audio component. One of the students has a 1940s vintage floor-standing radio. So we want to play some contemporary music and news broadcasts through it. And we need a little uh, digital playing device. They're inexpensive. They're amazingly small and inexpensive, meaning 30 or $40. But... Students shouldn't pay that. The department could probably pay it, but the paperwork would take weeks. So uh, if you donate this week to Civil War Talk Radio, your money will be spent on an educational project at East Carolina University and the May Museum of Farmville, North Carolina, uh, to tell the story of Ensign Paul Parker lost at sea flying an F-6F Hellcat off of Saipan in 1944. So... Guarantee this week your donation will actually go to something seriously worthwhile, uh, and it often has in the past. As, as listeners, longtime listeners, you already know that we've helped to uh, save Civil War sites in New York State. We've helped to uh, work on building a history facility here at East Carolina University in conjunction with a uh, a renaming of a college building named for a white supremacist. Uh, we've done a lot of good things with your money. Uh, and uh, if you want to contribute uh, for any reason, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney maintains the site, puts up buttons that say donate here, you click on it, you can use PayPal. Even if you have no PayPal account, it magically takes your money and all your personal data, I might add, uh, and and sends it to me for any use I wish to make of it. Uh, so you can click on those buttons, donate this way, and then uh, you can also find out who's going to be on the show. Next week, for example, James S. Pula, I hope I'm saying it right, I'll check with him, 
is the author of Under the Crescent Moon with the 11th Corps. He's, it's a multi-volume history. The first volume is already out, and that's what we'll talk about. 11th Corps, the Army of the Potomac, and its actions up through the Battle of Chancellorsville. We'll come back April 4th. Brian Downey is the webmaster of antietam.aotw.org. It's Antietam on the web, a remarkable Civil War website. We'll talk to Bill Penn and Daryl Smith of the Cynthiana Battlefields Foundation the following week, April 11th, as they discuss the Civil War battles of Cynthiana and Harrison County. And we'll stay in Kentucky the following week with Barry Craig, who talks about pro-Confederate press, the, the rebel press of Kentucky in the secession crisis. And we'll have more after that, but let's move on to tonight's guest, uh, who joins us uh, from... Uh, well, I have no idea where he is at the moment. He's somewhere <laughs> at the other end of the phone line. Uh, but his day job is at St. Olaf College. He is Michael Fitzgerald, author of Reconstruction in Alabama, From Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South. Mike, are you there? Yes, sir. Welcome to the me? show. Uh, I hear you yeah. fine, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, well, hello from Northfield, Minnesota, actually. No, that's, is that associated with Jesse James in some it way? It is indeed. Actually, um, it's not only associated with Jesse James. It's the place where the townspeople um, sort of broke up his band in 1876. This is the Great Northfield Raid. But guess who owned the bank? I have no idea. Ben Butler. There we go. So the Civil War's tentacles Butler and his, his reach. son-in-law, Adelbert Ames, had just yes. been impeached in Mississippi and or resigned mm-hmm. his position as governor and was here on site for the shootout. Wow. So so and that brings us back to reconstruction. Ames yes, reconstruction indeed. governor. Very, very tidy how that ties together. <laughs> I should point out you and I have not had the opportunity to meet at a conference as far as I recall, but so, so far as I know. But you were you were kind enough to send an email about this book and, and we got to converse a little bit. I've used your uh, book, Splendid Failure, uh, mm-hmm. as a, a short book on Reconstruction in my Civil War and Reconstruction class for a number of years. Uh, oh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I trust the students uh, thought it was tolerable. I, I think they do. I think um, I think we need to look in subsequent years for a, a uh, something that gives them a little more factual background, because they really don't have any structural knowledge of what went on, and your analysis sometimes leaves them saying, "But, like, who's the president?" Uh, they, <laughs> oh, they really need to—they need something basic uh, to work from to get to the level that that you approach with. But you tell a fascinating story in that book, as you do in the present book, um, Reconstruction in Alabama, and and we might start there with uh, the notion. I, I see it in both books that. The story is more complex than than we are generally given to believe. Um, in 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 Alabama, for example, before the Civil War, it's not just a uh, a single white voice calling for secession. There are a lot, uh, even though they're all uh, Democrats, or at least there aren't any Whigs left, and there are certainly no Republicans. Uh, right. They're all one party, but there's a lot of gradations there. Well, and I, I guess part of, part of the point of the book is that in Alabama, the divisions among the white population are so severe 
that actually the the parties are more competitive during Reconstruction because there's very strong divisions over secession. There's very strong divisions over the the war itself, you know, the, the occupation mm-hmm. of North Alabama. And then even before that, there's a large Whig population that has been sort of antagonized by the fact that they can't get any of their policy goals accomplished primarily in terms of railroads. So I guess what I'd say here is that the, the, the freedmen have more luck in Alabama than in some places because the white community is actually quite divided over issues that they care about a lot. And so it makes it possible for them to play off one faction of dissidents against another. So these divisions among the white population in Alabama, going back to, to even before the war, uh, are they connected with, with social class, with geography? Yeah. How, how, talk um, about yes, that. If, 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 I'm sure you're familiar with J. Mills Thornton's book on you know, sort of Jacksonian democracy in Alabama. Um, Alabama is an overwhelmingly Jacksonian state. They win every election in the 30 years before the war. But there are a lot of upper-class Whigs who are pursuing this state intervention in the economy agenda of economic development for banks, economic development money for railroads, and they, they're, they're barely irritated by the fact that they can't get railroads built. They, they, the government does not fund a railroad subsidy program in the decades before the Civil War. And so when Reconstruction happens, and a government that is supportive of railroad subsidies comes into power, there's a lot of complicity or um, willingness to collaborate with the Republicans in power to so achieve this is, some of their long-term policy goals of getting railroads built. So, so there are, there's an intersection of, of many kinds of interests, of, of financial and, and uh, transportational, as, as, as well as just the, uh, the racial white supremacy interests that unites all these people. We're going to take a short break and come right back, talk with our guest, Michael Fitzgerald, author of Reconstruction in Alabama. Uh, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. 
Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Michael Fitzgerald, author of Reconstruction in Alabama, From Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South. And while the bulk of the book is about Reconstruction, a good part is about Alabama before and during the war, and we'll talk a little bit about that going forward. But uh, I wanted to start with the, the section with asking you a historiographical question. This You point out in your introduction, this is the first substantial analysis of, of Alabama you know, during and especially after the Civil War in a hundred years, that uh, before this, you have, you have to go back to uh, Walter Fleming. Fleming. Yeah. Uh, that, for for listeners who have not had the pleasure of graduate school, <laughs> could you talk a bit about the the Dunning School? What that oh, means? And, and <laughs> All right. Um, at, at the turn of the century, um, inspired by the victory of the Democrats who overthrew Reconstruction and by the rising tide of lynching and disfranchisement and white supremacy, um, an academic school, the Dunning School, the the students of William Dunning at Columbia, kind of dominated the field with this, what we generally characterize as fairly straightforwardly racist interpretation of Reconstruction as a horrible mistake because black people shouldn't be voting. You know, if you assume turn-of-the-century racial attitudes, then you, the, the standard line is sort of like vindictive Republican radicals like Thaddeus Stevens are trying to humiliate the white South. They allow unqualified voters to vote for carpetbaggers and scoundrelly scalawags, and they bankrupt the, stat, the South in, in, in um, short order until the heroic forces of resistance overthrow Reconstruction. And Fleming is one of these scholars, and his 1905 book, which is the last big state history that's been done in Alabama, oddly, he's, he's not only enthusiastic about the overthrow of Reconstruction, he's actually kind of a Klan enthusiast. And so he has written other stuff on sort of 
his, expressing his enthusiasm for the Ku Klux Klan as necessary to restore white supremacy, and that this was a wholesome, responsible movement. And so he's just about the most distasteful of the old school. And people certainly haven't taken that interpretation very seriously for a while, but nobody had gone to the trouble of actually looking at the evidence again and telling the whole story. And I, it's, I cranked it into 350 pages, but his original book was like seven or 800 pages, so I, I am the soul of brevity. <laughs> well, you're, I mean, nobody reads Fleming or the Dunning School anymore other than graduate students for, for their background, but the... The interpretation infuses uh, the, the the films, uh, yeah. you know, Birth of a Nation. Well, which, Birth of a Nation, again, it is the Birth of a Nation interpretation. And Fleming it, actually mm-hmm. was promoting the film. At the time it was it, the film came out, he was actually writing a laudatory history of the Klan. He, he published, he, he publi- oh, he published, he republished a memoir by one of the founders of the Klan, in which he took the fellow to task for backsliding, for mm-hmm. insufficient enthusiasm for what the Klan accomplished. So he's like ultra Klan. And, and, and that interpretation then uh, continues to filter through, through Gone with the Wind, through popular culture, uh, not as strident or as explicit, but it's, you still yeah. find a lot of people today well, you who find people who are inclined that. to believe it. Yes. For people that are inclined to believe it, the, the, the version of Reconstruction that that, that that articulates is still around out there. And as you remember from my previous book, Splendid Failure, um, we've been, revisionists have been critiquing that ever since the 50s and 60s. So right. the wave of revisionism crested in the middle decades of the 20th century, pretty much dismissing this as just white supremacist special pleading. And actually, for revisionist, I'm actually pretty moderate um, <laughs> to, to Stamp or Franklin or somebody like that. But, um, but what, it, what I tried to do is just take a complete fresh look. And the other thing, the evidence available to him was not nearly as... He, he, he was, you know, he didn't even get a look at the, at the Freedmen's Bureau records. Hmm. You know, the, the evidence... What he did, did do well is that by virtue of his very strong white supremacist approach, he got access to all these former Klansmen who were telling him about what they remembered. So it works its way into the footnotes as oral testimony. Um, uh, the, one example, the most extreme Klansman probably in Alabama or perhaps the South is a fellow by the name of Ryland Randolph. He's the editor of a newspaper. He's the one who did those cartoons threatening death upon individual Republicans. You may have seen them. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps not. Um, at any event, Ryland Randolph wrote him a batch of letters, which wind up in the footnote explain, footnotes explaining exactly what his role was in murdering people. Wow. So his, the footnotes of, of Fleming's book are great. You know, you, he, he's, his, he's, so, he's amazingly indiscreet. So, so he tells us much more than he may have intended or not for the reasons uh, that he intended it. Right. He was no, bragging no. about it. He, he was, he was defending this as necessary. So, so no. the time, the time was ripe for somebody to take a different look at this, 
but I'm not, I was trying to be, to give a, an even-handed modern interpretation of what occurred. Mm-hmm. Well, you show that, uh, you talked a little bit in the first segment about divisions in Alabama politically before the Civil War, and you make a, a very strong point about the effect of the war itself on the state, that as Union forces occupy the northern tier of counties, as uh, uh, Buell's Army of the Ohio marches right. eastward across the state, uh, as they occupy towns like Athens and, and engage in uh, what Mark Grimsley calls the hard hand of war right. against uh, Alabama, that this has a real effect on, on well, the political think, outlook of people. I, I think I think so. Um, I, I think that the hard hand of war argument is actually, a lot of it is, is being worked out in North Alabama in the summer of 62. So as the Union Army occupies a place, this is one of the places in the South where full-scale guerrilla war emerges mm-hmm. very quickly. And so you get these anti-guerrilla measures that are just ferocious. And if you look at the letters of the Union soldiers, they are, they are really frightening in terms of their attitudes towards civilians. But the positive end of that is that they, they, go, they turn anti-slavery fairly strongly as part of this process of, of total war. Or I guess total war wouldn't be the term, but hard war. As the civilian the situation with civilians deteriorates, and then and then once they're forced to evacuate late in the year, as 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 Bragg marches north, when they come back the second time, they figure they're not going to leave much behind the next time they leave. So the whole Tennessee Valley is pretty much rampaged, and so um, you, you get and I, and I guess what you get is this very strong ideological sense that we're a superior culture. These people are backward. Their towns are backward. Their agriculture is primitive. You know, the only people down here who we can trust are the freedmen and the unionists in the hills. So this will will impact uh, the state after the war. You note the Union Army doesn't really occupy the southern half. You have Wilson's Raid near the end of the war, but, right, but mostly right. it's in the north. Yeah, it, the, the Tennessee Valley is occupied most of the time by the Union Army. They occasionally raid over the mountains once in a while, but but they also have to evacuate several times. And then and then even very late in the war, with Hood's raids raid north in the fall, you know, of '64. So what what you get is a, a Union command and the soldiers whose sense is that that they really shouldn't be leaving anything behind. And they're bragging about the destructiveness. And so what I think is happening is that one of the things that you get from this is that this is one of the regions where after the war, well, the the devastation is most intense in these occupied counties right along the Tennessee River on the extreme north of the state. And so late in, I mean, after the war, this becomes like the Klan heartland, that the whites are just utterly impoverished and infuriated. And so there's a direct connection between the wartime destruction and the level of violence that is in these North Alabama counties. And and one of the, I don't know if it's ironic or just confusing, but when you look back at the secession crisis, it's the northern counties that are opposed to secession and want to go slow. Right. Uh, and the southern ones, the the, the, the Whigs, the, the big planters in the Black Belt who are more eager to secede, but 
it, it, and then you've got a peace movement. I want to ask about this. Then you have a peace movement late in the war, uh, where again the state is divided. Uh, some people in Alabama are arguing to to get the state out of the Confederacy. Right. Well, um, a couple things. In in the north part of the state, under Union occupation, there are a lot of people that have concluded the war is lost, mm-hmm. and so there is a Unionist or or defeatist contingent in the north part of the state that that you know is is looking towards towards the war ending as soon as possible. But it's also true that within the two thirds of the state that remains under Confederate control. About eventually, you start getting people in Montgomery, kind of conservatives, like the kind of conservatives that you find elsewhere in the South, that are beginning to look towards a negotiated peace. And what they're doing in Montgomery, especially after Vicksburg and Gettysburg, and then especially after Atlanta, is they're just waiting for the Union Army to march towards Montgomery so they can surrender the state as quickly as possible. There's there is a strong peace movement that is surreptitious but is clearly negotiating with Lincoln through the lines. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're hoping for like Lincoln giving them five years to emancipate the slaves, ten years to emancipate the slaves in exchange for immediate surrender. And so yeah, one of the things that's interesting about Alabama is that because almost no battles are fought in the state until the last month of the war. You know, all the big battles are just beyond the state's borders. What you find here is that it becomes an interesting place to study the home front, because the home front in Alabama really is the, the story. And, the, and in, in South Alabama, they realize that they haven't been devastated yet. And so you have a constituency for immediate surrender when it becomes clear the war is going to be lost. Um, and they're very, very disappointed when Wilson's raid just torches through the center of the, of the black belt. Did, did that make sense? As sure. It, well, it, it, it does. It, I mean, it's a confusing situation. Yeah, I guess what mm-hmm. I'd say here is, there's this, so the Whigs, a lot of them kind of morphs, morph into what you might call conservatives. Mm-hmm. Like in the 1860 election, a lot of them are voting for Douglas or Bell. You know, the, the Democrats carry the state with like 54% of the vote with Breckinridge, but mm-hmm. there's a strong contingent of people that had been resistant to the state's rights march towards extremism. And when Lincoln gets elected, they kind of fall in line with secession, deciding that they have to go with secession. But as the war turns sour, a lot of them begin to back off again. And by, by the middle of the war, there's a lot of settlement sentiment that is anti-Davis, they think he's wrecking the South, and are looking towards maybe a separate Alabama peace. And there are feelers through the lines late in the war of this conservative following. Um, And there's actually um, the the future governor, um, Lewis Parsons, actually makes a public proposal that if um, McClellan wins the war, Alabama will make peace on the basis of the Democratic platform where they're willing to oh, negotiate. So there's if, a if McClellan state, is elected in 64, you're saying? If McClellan is elected in 64, we will negotiate mm-hmm. with the new president on the basis of the Democratic platform, which would mm-hmm. be reunion with slavery intact. And Davis uh, is so unnerved by this that he comes to Montgomery to denounce it just as this is happening. 
Now, this is interesting uh, because that brings up the point that the the conservatives who oppose uh, Davis or the, those who initially who opposed secession in 1860 for different reasons, one thing underlying all of this is they are all united in white supremacy and pro-slavery views. They just have different ideas of how best to preserve a slave society. Well, I, that, I think that, I, I'm sorry, finish your thought. Well, well, just want to make make sure it, it's not in our. These are not proto Republicans who are secretly looking for a way to abolish slavery and create an egalitarian society. That, that's not a strand of of white Alabama. No, but, no. But what's interesting is that the the governor who gets elected is a Unionist refugee, you know, William mm-hmm. H. Smith, but he reaches out to the former conservative following, and manages to get some to go over. So Alabama has the most conservative Republican governor in the, in, in the South. Smith is actually kind of a, 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 like, not very good on racial matters. But he's able to reach out to this former conservative following on the basis of his extreme support for railroad promotion. Because the conservatives have been resistant to this... Um, secessionist ideological extremism and they kind of want to get back to like economic development and business and so their their major focus is railroad construction factories state promotion of economic diversification and so they find the republicans rather attractive for a while there 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 are a lot of the a lot of the former conservatives wind up as nominal Republicans, conservative Republicans in Alabama. And that's what makes it so interesting. The, the, the conservatives are really in the driver's seat in Alabama. There are no blacks elected to state office in Alabama. It's, it's, in contrast uh, the, the, to, to other states. Yeah, in contrast to other states. Um, the, the conservative strength in the state is so strong that the freedmen are, are actually pretty antagonized by Smith, and you have ferocious factional fights between Smith's conservative or moderate faction and uh, the so-called carpetbag fa- fa- uh, faction of Senator Spencer. So I guess, I guess what's interesting about Alabama is that there's a lot of complex white politics, which the, the white population is so divided that the freedmen are actually able to maintain political relevance. The Republicans are actually voted out in 1870, and they're voted back in in 72. They recover the state and elect a governor by a substantial margin because the Democrats are such a disaster in power, they bankrupt the state, or they bankrupt the the railroad program. And so they actually have competitive two parties with a lot of white defections until, until the Depression of 73 hits. And then the economy tanks, and it ends pretty quickly. But it's a, well, the, the, we're we're going to take a, a short break here. Then we'll come back to that point when we return. We're talking tonight with Michael Fitzgerald, author of Reconstruction in Alabama. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with the author of Reconstruction in Alabama, From Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South. He's Mike Fitzgerald, professor at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota. And we've been talking about the uh, remarkably complex politics in Alabama among the the governing white population before and during the Civil War and moving those same divisions continue into the post-Civil War era. Uh, one one factor certainly being the, the absence of two parties means instead of clear party divisions, you've got all kinds of other divisions based on many other factors. But what I want to ask you uh, about, Mike, as we start the third segment here, is the uh, you made the point just as we were closing that the freedmen, uh, the former slaves, were able to carve out a certain amount of political power by exploiting or, or being aware of these these fractures among the, the white body politic. Uh, and that's something that, that the revisionists of the, the post-World War II era, the 60s and 70s, talked about a lot, about black agency, uh, certainly phoners. Uh, standard history of Reconstruction right. focuses heavily on, on the African-American experience in Reconstruction. Uh, and and your argument uh, in this book is, is first to take a look at, at the entire society, but you then turn to the question of, of black participation in politics in Reconstruction. Well, uh, talk, talk about that, if you would. Well, okay. Um, well, one thing that I'll say that's sort of interesting about Alabama is the experience in the state is fairly diverse. As we've talked about, the North Alabama is is rampaged by the war, and South Alabama is almost untouched to the very end. And so one thing about that is that in the air, North Alabama, where the races are roughly 50-50 in the Tennessee Valley and in the surrounding mountains, the Klan is rampant, there's widespread violence, and the freedmen can't do much about if the numbers are 50-50, it's hard to stop the Klan. 
and so they're 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 rampaging through the region. But in the heart of the Black Belt, freedmen are like 65, 70, 75 percent of the population. Alabama's black, Alabama's black population is actually very concentrated in the area from Selma to Montgomery, you know, right across the south central part of the state. And so the numbers are such that the Klan episode there is kind of short-lived. And as the plantation system recovers, as sharecropping proves that it can make planters money, for several years there, the plantation economy recovers, and the violence, the Klan is kind of only an occasional presence in most of the Black Belt. And it's possible for free people to have some level of economic and political success. They're winning elections routinely in the predominantly black counties for three, four, five years. And so I, I guess what I'd say here is that, that when the economy recovers, um, freedmen are able to start clawing their way out of poverty, and some are actually able to make some money until the Depression of 73. And so I guess what I'd say here is there's kind of a, a bifurcated history of the state. North Alabama is, a, is just ravaged by the Klan. But most of the freedmen live in places where their numbers and the, 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 the demand for their labor give them some leverage and, and are able to have kind of normal lives for several years with a somewhat responsive government, serve on juries, local offices, that kind of thing. And so um, Reconstruction, Redemption, when it comes, is just a cataclysm because, in fact, they haven't been able to restore, have some level of stability the way the area around Charleston in, in South Carolina, you know, the areas where there's little violence, the predominantly black areas in Alabama mostly don't have that much violence for half a dozen years. This is one of the uh, – this points to the, the classic uh, work by C. Van Woodward on the, the strange career of Jim Crow. Uh, m- most people who haven't studied or thought about this assume the country went straight from slavery to second-class citizenship and Jim Crow. But this, this oasis uh, in the Reconstruction era, in some places lasting until the 1890s, uh, where, where African-Americans did have – some a, as you say, some influence, some opportunity. Uh, you use the phrase "balance of fear," uh, uh, moving uh, from from solely in, in on the side of the white planters through the whole slavery era. Uh, that this balance of fear suddenly, at least temporarily, is is shifted in well, the late eighteen sixties. Well, Selma, Dallas County, is eighty percent mm-hmm. black. And the plantation region is doing really well. If you're a planter in a, in a neighborhood that is 80% black, do you want the Klan around? You know, and so the freedmen are able to use... And the other thing is that, that sharecropping pays planters well because they figure out that they can make money merchandising goods and loaning money to the freedmen. And so as long as the economy is good in the areas that are you know, predominantly black, Reconstruction looks very different than it does in the Tennessee Valley where the Klan is just rampaging people and murdering people all over the place. Is, so, is there an element of self-defense in, in the oh, yeah, black belt absolutely. counties? 
Absolutely. Um, if in in the, when the clan turns up in the in the heart of the black belt, fires start appear. You know, people do mobilize in self defense. People do threaten retaliation, and mysterious fires often will break out. People will. I mean, it's not that 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 something is happening out of the goodness of planters' hearts, mm-hmm. but that the circumstances are such that it's just too dangerous. And it isn't until the Depression comes in 73 that you get a full-scale violent mobilization that can turn the tide back again. This so, wave of... So what happens in, in 1873, uh, okay, nationally and locally? Okay, so, so you have a situation where across most of the Black Belt, labor is really in demand. And planters are making very nice sums of money, merchandising goods to freedmen, you know, the company store type thing, you know, the planters loaning money. Um, All that is dependent on outside credit. Well, when the Depression hits, all that outside credit dries up. Money from New York, money from from Paris, London. um, And suddenly the freedmen... Nobody's loaning money to the planters in the middle of a depression. The planters aren't, and merchants aren't loaning money to freedmen. So suddenly they're not being fed. And so lots of people become homeless. Lots of people abandon their crops in the fields. And they go from a situation of labor shortage to labor, uh, la- la- massive labor surplus. And the planters' complaints is that theft spikes. The people are, are stealing food to support themselves in the middle of a catastrophic depression. And so the planter's food goes from wanting black laborers around to trying to drive them out. And this is the economic component of the white league mobilization, the terrorist mobilization that finally does redeem the state in 74. Did that make sense? It it does. It, it's I mean, it and no out. one's and no one's really said this. This is Foner's book, mm-hmm. which is the the landmark work on this. You know, Recon- right. Reconstruction America's Unfinished Revolution. It's very heavy on the, the the conflict of the period immediately after the war, as the shift to sharecropping occurs and as as labor's in chaos. What he kind of downplays is that there's four, five, six years where the economy recovers in the black belt and things are different. But what nobody's looked at is what happens when the economy tanks again, mm-hmm. and suddenly planters see freedmen go from freedmen go from desired labor to people they think are stealing from their fields, and so you get this wave of racist mobilization. And it, it's I think this is the part of the book that that really people haven't done elsewhere because you know nobody's written like a state study of Reconstruction like this in mm-hmm. twenty years. Anywhere. Why do you suppose that is? Well, there was a there was a bunch of them that kind of came in the aftermath of the revisionist wave, mm-hmm. and I think people thought that there was nothing new to say. And if all you do is Reconstruction was good, there isn't much to say. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the economics of what's going on, and you take the phoner analysis of what's going on in the plantations, tying into the politics. It works for the later period, too, but the results are just devastating. So I think, I hope people do actually read this book. I think it's time for people to start thinking about Reconstruction again. It's the 150th anniversary, and God knows 
racial conflict is on our mind now. And, and, and uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the, so understanding the roots uh, of where this comes from is certainly timely. Yeah. No, I know. Now, it's, let me ahead. ask a, a related question. Uh, another thread that runs through your book is the the railroad issue. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that before the war, the the Whigs, the large planters, are eager to have investment in railroads, and they're frustrated not to get it from the, the Jacksonian state government. Uh, but uh, railroads pop up again in, in Reconstruction well, and, and play a big role in, in the... Uh, let, let me give you an example of this. One of the interesting sure. things in the book is the, the presidential Reconstruction governor, Robert Patton. Mm-hmm. Now, he's a pre-war Whig. He's not eager to secede. And when he comes into power... The major goal of his life is to get the state's finances, like, like prevent the state from defaulting so that he can have the state fund railroads again or, or pursue the railroad subsidy policy. So, so big mm-hmm. state subsidies to railroads. And what's odd about, about um, Patton is that he endorses the 14th Amendment to get Congress off the South's back. And then he endorses Reconstruction, hmm. the presidential Reconstruction governor. And his, his thing is, okay, if we let blacks vote, Congress will let us back into the union, and then our, our credit rating will improve and we can get our railroad program through. And so it's very clear that, that, that the, much of the conservative leadership of Alabama is so eager to get railroads built that they're willing to see blacks vote, at least temporarily, if they can get Alabama back into the Union under the Reconstruction Plan, and then they can issue bonds that people will buy. It's a pretty so extraordinary th- story. And, it, and so It is. It is. And, and what happens, and, and what's interesting about the railroad issue, is that when Alabama, when the Republicans come in, Governor mm-hmm. Smith passes an extraordinarily ambitious railroad bill, spends like, like you know, very large, you know, like, like $16,000 a mile for every railroad built in Alabama, the, the, Alabama, the state will, gov- will guarantee your loans. So there's a big state subsidy. And what's interesting is that, that when the railroads start getting built, they need to get like local initiatives also to, to fund them. And planters and freedmen have a common interest in railroads going through their neighborhoods. They want the railroads going through the richest plantation areas. They both do. And so the pattern on these railroad initiatives, like the local railroad bonds, when they have elections on them, which they have in Alabama, mm-hmm. the, the, black belt, the, planter, the blacks and the whites vote together for them, as opposed to the places that the railroads don't go. So there are some economic issues where planters and their, their, their tenants and their workers actually have some common interests if they can get the railroad system up and running. Did that make sense? It, absolutely, and, and uh, we don't have time, unfortunately, to go any further with it to find out how the railroads don't end up getting successful. No, it doesn't work. It's a uh, it doesn't work, <laughs> unfortunately. But that's a good reason for listeners to go out and buy a copy of Reconstruction in Alabama: From Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South, by our guest tonight, Michael W. Fitzgerald. Uh, Mike, it has been a pleasure talking with you about this, this most misunderstood period in American history, uh, and I hope a lot of people will read your book. 
Well, thank you very kindly. Let's hope so. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. This has been great fun. And I've enjoyed it as well. And listeners, as always, to you, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.